it became very clear that identity was also at the centre of, of a lot of the pain that they were feeling when they're undergoing rehabilitation and transition after injuries. And I think that's where I really realised that I had something to bring. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Clean, you were going to a funeral I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of us. She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. I'm Sharon Maskell-Dare and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this episode, we meet Dr. Paula Dabovich, a former soldier who's now a reservist general service officer in the Royal Australian Army Medical Corps. She's dedicated her career to understanding military personnel from a perspective that's deep, insightful, and has much to teach us about how we care for our veterans. Paula, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. And thank you for having me, Sharon. It's an absolute pleasure to be uh, talking with you today. So tell us first of all a bit about where you grew up and how that had a direct influence on your decision to get involved with the military. It's not terribly surprising that I joined the military. I was born in a small town six hours north of Adelaide called Woomera. At the time it was a rocket range and also an American Air Force base. It was a gated community, very secure and very safe, and I grew up around the military. My dad was uh, with the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, and it was a fairly natural progression, I think, to eventually one day return to a military environment. So tell us a bit more about that. I mean, you know, Woomera's got quite an almost mythical, legendary kind of quality about it. I mean, there's lots of stories about what went on there years ago. What do you remember about it growing up there? The most significant thing I think about growing up in any country town is the simplicity of life. We didn't really have stuff, uh, but we had nature. I guess we all looked out for each other as a community as well. So I think the boundaries between everyone's properties were very, uh, very fluid, a very secure environment. I think by age of five, we were walking to the movies together, my brother and I, who was one year older than me. And it was just a done thing. Everyone looked out for each other and looked out for each other's children and very secure, trusting and a place where you could really explore and have fun. And to what extent did the military side of that base get into the culture of living there as a young family? It's interesting you should say that because I think perhaps like when people leave the military, you don't really know what it is about it until you leave. And I left Woomera when I was eight years old and I do remember a very, very palpable grief and it probably took me years afterwards to realise what I did miss. From a military perspective, I guess it's just, it was in my blood. <laughs> my parents divorced when I was eight and my mother ended up marrying an American Air Force chap. And even uh, for quite a few years after we left Woomera, we would visit the US and live on an American Air Force base over there as well, so in, in Colorado. But it was certainly something that was in my blood. 
Do you remember anything about rocket testing or anything exciting like that? Well, uh, where my father worked on the rocket range was in a secure area. So we don't really have memories of rocket launches. But in the after hours periods, I suppose, my dad would take us walking along the airstrips, for example, looking for fossils and indigenous artefacts. And that's something that we would quite often find. And that was always very exciting. And interestingly, when we get later in your story, the whole connection with Indigenous culture was something I know that became very important to you. But, but before we go to that point, tell us then what happened then when you moved to Adelaide and how you then decided to become involved with the military. As I said, when I was eight, I moved to Adelaide to live with my father. And when I was 13, I was given the opportunity through a friend to be exposed to army cadets. And it was certainly reconnecting with the military through army cadets was really feeling a part of my childhood that I perhaps didn't know was missing uh, for quite some time. It's a culture that certainly resonated very strongly with me. I felt very comfortable socially. In fact, it's a funny story. I kept a diary from when I was uh, 13 to about 18. Cadets was every Wednesday night and uh, it became quite obvious I entered nothing in my diary all week, but it was just Wednesday to Wednesday entries. You know, the strongest friends that I made were through cadets and I'm still in contact with today. It was a great childhood and a great way to spend and to focus the teenage years. So what did you learn in cadets that was particularly valuable to you? I mean, not only did you have that connection with culture and that military culture through joining the cadets, but what do you remember learning at that time that stayed with you? The most significant thing I think I was able to take away from cadets is the fact that there were bonds made, which were unlike any bonds I could make at high school, for example. And probably the most important thing as well is this idea of egalitarianism. You know, I had friends that I grew up with in cadets who were from housing commission homes. I had friends who went to Poultney Grammar. It didn't matter. It was just such a wonderful mix of people and we all saw each other for who we were, not from where we came from. And that was quite liberating for us all. Sounds like that was a very strong and formative experience for you that you then took forward. Do you think then when you came to join the military yourself, was that very much a natural progression for you or did you still have to challenge yourself in terms of that decision? Absolute natural progression. When I was uh, 17, I'd finished high school by the time I was 17 and it was the uh, early 90s and and recession and uh, I decided to take a university placement up in Darwin actually to study arts and psychology. And at 17, I joined Norforce and uh, became an intelligence operator with Norforce. And uh, once again, it was a very natural bridge moving forward as an adult to use the military as a platform moving forward. Now, Norforce is known for employing large numbers of Indigenous people. What was your experience? It is a unit which is uh, very deeply embedded with the Indigenous communities, as you have mentioned. In fact, it's their knowledge of the land and their insight which really gives Norforce its strength and its capacity to, to represent or to have a military presence right through the northern uh, northern areas of Australia. As I mentioned, I was an intelligence operator, but my main area of operations or my AO was in Arnhem Land. So I was able to spend some very significant time with the Indigenous communities in Arnhem Land, both as a uh, photographer for the vital assets out there, but also uh, one of my favourite experiences was uh, acting as a, an enemy party for, for training exercises with Norforce out that way as well. But certainly, in fact, probably one of, my, one of the most spiritual moments I've had uh, in my life was uh, on an exercise where I was playing enemy party for a, a North Force exercise, was just bathing in the pristine waters of Arnhem Land. It was almost like a baptism. And to be that close to nature and to have such a spiritual connection with the earth again, I think as well, was very important to me. 
What's interesting, though, is you talk about, obviously, there was a real passion at that time for photography. Mm. You're obviously, as you say, starting to connect with this very spiritual, very creative part of yourself. So what did you then do with those realisations that you'd had about your skills and perhaps where you wanted to take them within the military context? I can't say the next phase of my career were really based on those insights, although I think that did come. The commanding officer of Norforce at the time was uh, an ex-officer of the SAS in Perth. During my time there, it was him that recommended that I go to Duntroon. And given once again, it was the early 90s and we were in deep recession and it was a, a good and logical career path for me, I decided to apply and, um, and I got in. I was 19 when I went to Duntroon. I guess the next five and a half, six years was more conventional military. So let's just talk a little bit more about those years at Duntroon. This is the Royal Military College Duntroon where you trained to be an army officer. What was that training like and what kind of impact did it have on you in terms of your own personal and professional development? The Royal Military College Duntroon, it was phenomenal. I had a profoundly positive experience of the institution or the organisation. I will put my hand up and say 100%. I'm not one of those people that ever experienced harassment or any discrimination because I was female. In fact, it was one of those places where I felt, I guess, similar to cadets, that none of that mattered. Uh, All you needed to do was to meet the standards which they uh, imposed and demanded that was necessary to be an officer in the um, profession of arms and to conduct oneself with integrity and honesty and competence. And once you've ticked those boxes, it was quite a phenomenal experience. The training itself was world-class. There are, once again, relationships that were forged which are enduring to this day and pervasively, positively still impact my life. So it had a very deep and enduring effect on you. That comes through very strongly from what you've said there. You talked about some of the relationships Are there any in particular that you'd like to relate to us? Is there any anecdotes that stand out in terms of those relationships that you forged and indeed that real sense of mateship that was made through the training program that you experienced at Duntroon? Gee, that's a big question, Sharon. Um, Look, it's interesting. I think probably one of my greatest relational achievements was introducing a good friend of mine who I met through cadets when I was 13 years old by the name of Ian Langford. We did cadets together. We went to school together. We joined Duntroon together. And within the first couple of days of me joining Duntroon, there was another young lady that I met by the name of Caitlin Mordyke. And uh, we locked eyes and we became really good friends. We've reflected on it since. And she said she could see the friendliness in my eyes and I could see the friendliness in hers. And we became great friends. And, uh, and I introduced Caitlin and Ian to one another. And then they're still married. Uh, so <laughs> that. It was probably one of the most significant bringing together of my past life as a child and my experience at Duntroon in terms of the potential of these relationships. And they've got a, a couple of young kids, both still in the military, and um, and very proud of that connection. So when you completed your training at Duntroon, what did you then go on to achieve next? Because you ended up joining Ramey, the Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. So how did that come about? It's an interesting story again, because once again, it's, it's that of relationship, isn't it? So when I was uh, with Norforce, a friend of mine put me in contact with someone who thought would be a great role model for me. And her name was uh, Amelia Verzaletti, and she was a Ramey officer. And the person who thought that uh, she'd be a great role model was absolutely right. 
I had a deep admiration and respect for her. And when she found out that I would potentially be going to uh, to Duntroon, she took me under her wing and uh, helped me train and helped me get fit and included me in a lot of her social activities so I could get to know people who had gone through Duntroon. And she was a Ramey officer and I figured that was as good as anything and I wanted to be just like her <laughs> in many ways. Uh, so it was good role modelling. Now, I'm making an assumption here, and I think many of our listeners would too, that if you're going to join Ramey as a core, that you'd need to have some ability and knowledge of, you know, engineering, electrical and mechanical engineering. So did you learn particular skills with regard to those traits? So as a general service officer, people are taken into the electrical mechanical engineers as I guess you could say more of a human resource element uh, where we utilise our training and leadership and execution of operations as opposed to the technical mastery. And that was certainly one of the attractive components of going to the electrical mechanical engineers is that you knew that your platoon would be the masters of their training and it was always a very fine line in you know executing your role as a leader of a platoon but also understanding the expertise that lays within the platoon that was completely separate to your own expertise and uh, you know we are a core that relies very heavily on its senior NCOs and warrant officers to help guide junior officers in their decision making and that was a real privilege. And you were posted back to Darwin as your, right. your first posting out of RMC. So, so what did that involve? The first posting was as the Ford Repair Platoon Commander for what was then called the first uh, One Badsby, which was a uh, logistics battalion and uh, is now known as the Combat Service Support Battalion uh, of the 1st Brigade. Yeah, that was my first posting and once again quite a shock for someone who was uh, a mere 20 years old, but um, certainly guided by some fantastic senior NCOs, NCOs and I think actually I had a a platoon of 40 and I was the only female and I was 20. It was intimidating but I think the secret there is to remain humble and to know that these postings are absolutely incumbent with opportunities to learn but also really exercise that decision making about um, you know when to listen to the NCOs and, and when to you know, make decisions that are independent of that uh, more in line with command and um, yeah, it was an interesting couple of years. Now, you decided to take a career break at one point from the army to mm. pursue other interests and, and you, indeed your civilian career. So just tell us a bit about how that came about and, and really what was important for you in that period in terms of developing new skills and interests that you then chose to bring back to the Australian Army. For anyone who has served for some period in the military would understand that from the Vietnam era, until late 1999, it was a peacetime army. And that was when I served. As we've mentioned before, I think I graduated from Duntroon about 1995. My first posting as a subaltern was uh, in 1996. And over that period, whilst in Darwin, I met who eventually became my husband. And by 1999, we still hadn't had any indication that there were any deployments on the horizon. And at that time, It'd been almost six years where I had been trained. It's like training for a sporting competition, but never being able to compete. And personally, I started to lack a little bit of find a meaning in what I was doing. My husband was posted to Sydney and I followed him to Sydney. And it was at that point that I realised that I would pursue nursing. Certainly would help, I think, balance out the technical side of me that uh, and the leadership side that I'd worked in the work to achieve in the military. And it rounded me out in a way I guess a humanistic way. There was a part of me that, I guess this is probably reaching back to the Norforce days, I suppose, that really wanted to explore the human condition more than what, what was available in the military at that time. So I decided to become a nurse. So I went back to university. I, I trained as a nurse. 
as a fairly natural extension, I think, of the military skills. I originally started working in the emergency department at the same time of, ha- of having my children, of course. But eventually, my area of interest came to extend to community care. And I became a community nurse, looking after those who had complex and chronic health conditions. And as a part of that, I actually led a group of veterans in a wellness program as well. And that was like my first foray back into the veteran world where the patients uh, in the program that I was running really, really enjoyed the fact that I was uh, I had a military experience as well. And it, they made it quite clear, it enabled them to connect with me in a way that they perhaps may not have connected with others. So we made a great team. And it was around that time and perhaps inspired by it that I woke up I think one morning in about 2008, having been out of the military for almost 10 years, I woke up one morning and decided that I needed to be back. I needed to put on a uniform again. And there was something else now that I could bring to the military that I perhaps couldn't have done previously. And given that by that point, the military had seen a good, almost a decade of operational service, there was more motivation to get back in uniform. And I went back as a reservist. Tell us a bit more then about what it was that you were bringing back. You just talked there about your experiences as a nurse of working in the Veteran Wellbeing Program, of having these kind of insights in terms of connecting that need within you to develop yourself within that nursing context, but then also have a connection to the military. So what was it specifically that you were bringing back to the military that you'd not been able to contribute before? That insight came a little bit later. In 2008, I went back as a reservist to do project work. And that's just because of the people I knew took me under their wing and enabled me to take on some project work with Army Headquarters. I think one of the first things I did was a liaison officer to the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, which was an absolute phenomenal experience. And in fact, it was during that thing I was hosting in the VIP box that I met then the Governor of New South Wales, Marie Bashir, Dame Marie Bashir, as she's known now. And once again, this will come back to the story a little bit later. But most significantly over that period as well, I was taken on to help write and help frame the Indigenous Engagement Strategy for Army at the time, which I did working a little bit out of Canberra. And mind you, I'm raising my two children at the moment who are quite young over this period, but it was just the most perfect work to balance out my previous life experience, my need to meet the needs of my children and work in a meaningful way. So it was over that period, I guess, that I was then approached by the Governor of New South Wales to become her aide-de-camp, one of her aide-de-camps. And not long after that, I was invited into, I guess you could say, a high-risk combat unit to help care for the wounded, injured and ill soldiers, particularly those who are undergoing rehabilitation. And I think it was through, or most definitely it was around that time that I realised my life experiences could bring something to this situation which may not otherwise have been brought. And that's when my worlds started to collide. So you talk there about a form of realisation, that this was the moment when you began to realise that all the life experiences you'd had, the skills that you'd by then accumulated, now had a new and important application within the Australian Army. So tell us a bit more about that realisation and how that then played out. What became clear was the central theme of identity. Understanding Indigenous populations is really understanding identity. To understand the health and health outcomes of Indigenous populations is really understanding the centrality of identity. And as a nurse, 
to help someone uphold a sense of dignity and identity as they undergo chronic and complex health conditions is central to what we do. And when I entered this, uh, I guess, high-risk combat world of, of current serving personnel, it became very clear that identity was also at the centre of, of a lot of the pain that they were feeling when they're undergoing rehabilitation and transition after injuries. And I think that's where I really realised that I had something to bring. At the time, you know, a lot of the issues that were, a lot of the distress faced by a lot of the uh, soldiers undergoing rehabilitation, they were being treated for their symptoms, you know, which is the appropriate clinical response to the distress. But there was very little dialogue about what might be causing those symptoms. And looking a little bit further upstream, I guess, to the psychosocial or the uh, relationships that had been forged through service and the loss of those as people changed both physically and changed in their social context. And how that could be impacting there was very little dialogue around that so that's uh, I think became my mission is to bring voice to the soldiers and I guess those of the defence force more generally as to what it means to develop these very special and unique relationships and what it means to lose it and how that can impact the trajectory and mental health trajectories of our defence force personnel. Now, there was wide recognition for the importance of the work you were doing, so much so that you ended up doing a PhD on this subject. So tell us a bit more about what you discovered through the conduct and research that was required for that PhD. That must have led you to further insights that you were clearly able to bring back to the military as a consequence. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think one of the first realisations that I had was around this idea of identity, which is, like I said, at the core of what nurses do. One of the first things I started doing was reading the because I wasn't a psychologist. You know, I'll put it right out there. I'm not a psychologist. But these threads of commonality were too palpable to ignore. So I started to read about the history of developmental theory and identity and how one comes to develop identity. And what I discovered was the very foundations of developmental theory as we know it today was developed by a core of medical officers in the UK after World War II. And what's interesting about them is that they were all veterans. Some of them, or most of them, had served in World War II, but some had even served in World War I as soldiers and then went on to be medical officers and, and served in World War II. And it was a psychoanalytic slant that they brought to the treatment of soldiers and veterans at the time that underpin everything we know about the human, the development of the human psyche as we know it today. And what also became palpable when I started to, to research this history was the fact that the insights, so many insights on developmental theory were drawn from the loss of identity in veterans themselves. In this current day, it's certainly in treatment modalities, that insight seems to be lost on the very population that it was developed on. And that underpinned theoretically my work, which, which was to follow in my PhD. So that's fascinating. So what you're saying there, Paul, if I've understood correctly, and just for our listeners to be able to make sure that we were on the same page here, is that what was developed by veterans themselves in terms of their perhaps understanding of their own experiences of war, World War I, World War II, what they then developed as a theory for understanding the human condition has then had this incredible impact throughout the latter half of the 20th century and, and even up until the present day now. And yet within the context of treating veterans, somehow that messaging and that understanding got lost. 100% spot on, Sharon. That was uh, so beautifully summarised. I wish I had done that uh, a few minutes ago. 
No, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And framing veteran mental health and developmental terms just makes so much sense. You'll see descriptively, there are a lot of other concepts which veterans really do embrace. So there's not only this issue of post-traumatic stress disorder, there is this issue of post-traumatic growth. And currently they sit quite independently of each other in terms of understanding their relationship with each other. And there's also these uh, other emerging fields such as uh, moral injury, for example. And once again, this is a standalone concept unless we consider it in this broader framework and developmental theory is something that can cohere all of these ideas and all of these descriptive accounts of how military service and war can impact the psyche. It coheres in a way that can be used optimistically. And one of the most important things about developmental theory is that we know one of the most important things is what we call a transitional environment. So it's not only about what the individual goes through, it's also about what support systems are available to the individual to help them navigate these significant changes in their life trajectories that can really impact their long-term outcomes. So you've talked there about the way this might play out in terms of the theory behind it. But what about for individuals? How do they experience what you've been describing there? Through the thematic analysis, really working through the themes of how participants in my research talked about their rehabilitation experiences. Oh, sorry, I should say, in order to realise the themes of growth and adaptation, we used a values which really helped, where I was able to ask questions which really helped people to articulate what was important to them and how what was important to them helped motivate them towards whatever they were working towards. So using a values framework, we're able to map a recovery process that was uh, naturalistic and fairly common amongst those who participated in my research. And, And what we found was, first and foremost, that there were two ways of coping in this particular uh, combat population. The first and foremost way of coping was exactly how they'd been trained, to push past, to push through, to push around any barriers that were placed in front of them. And that's what makes a good soldier, right? So these ways of pushing were highly, highly adaptive to operating in a combat situation. But when these people sustained wounds, injuries and illnesses, that they could not push past, they could not push through, they could not push around, they were forced to find ways to cope and adapt that were previously unknown to them. And by using values as a way to understand these adaptations, what we found is that the first thing that they really had to draw on is that of humility. To know that they had changed in ways that they could not control, which really helped them to develop acceptance. And that acceptance helped them to reflect on their situation. And that involved a capacity for reflection. You know, they're almost forced into a situation where quite helpfully had time to reflect in ways they hadn't had time to reflect on before. But through acceptance and through developing this perspective, they're able to start to see different ways forward. They had to see different ways forward. They were forced to see different ways forward and consider different ways forward. And with that in mind, the next, I guess, phase of adaptation for these particular soldiers was developing a greater sense of compassion and a greater sense of gratitude for others they had previously taken for granted. In particular, family members who they'd taken for granted became really, really important to them. Members of the health community, which they had previously taken for granted or not really appreciated the work of, became particularly important to them. And by seeing the value in others in these ways, they came to see these same values in themselves, which once again gave them new options for the future about how they could potentially be useful in society in a way that wasn't just different to what they did, but built on what they previously had done in the military. 
So I guess with humility on board, a greater sense of compassion and gratitude, these particular members of the military then reverted back to their values that made them really, really good soldiers. And in particular, once they'd found, they almost like had an epiphany when once they found a way forward, once they realised how they could be useful again, they went back to those values of passion and perseverance and integrity and responsibility and did what it took to get what they wanted now, and whether that was to retrain physically or to retrain from an academic perspective. These values that had seen them through the military and helped them to get to where they had at that point became really important to them again. What's important to note here is that these aren't an either-or situation. It's not they were just people who then became compassionate and grateful and humble and left those old values behind. What this represents is actually an increasing maturity and complexity where they're able to be, where necessary, these really hardworking, um, fighting, passionate individuals with strong integrity and focus, but also this new capacity to execute humility compassion and gratitude in ways they couldn't have done before. So we're in seeing a, an increasing complexity within the psyche. And what the beauty of this is, is that these are things that can be carried by the individual and expressed in society with or without dysfunction and disorder. You can have these things, whether you are having nightmares at night, whether you are uh, able to work in a full-time capacity, these values represent a pivot point that people can grow and mature into the next phase of life. And I guess that's what brings them from a personal perspective is what uh, really closed the rehabilitation journey of these individuals is that almost all went on to find a new place in society that built upon not only being a soldier, but also these experiences of hardship. So groundbreaking work there, Paula. What was the reaction then to when you presented this back to the military? I mean, when you speak to soldiers about what you've discovered about the rehabilitation journey of soldiers who are wounded, injured or ill, what has been their reaction to your discoveries? The most humbling thing for me is that when I talk about this to soldiers themselves, defence people themselves, some are brought to tears. Some really do express the fact that I've captured something which is so utterly important to their own understanding of their mental health, but also expressing their distress to their family and loved ones for really helping their family and loved ones to understand what they're going through and very happily ask, ask their family members to read my work to really mesh what's going on, I suppose. So first and foremost, the response from the veteran community itself is overwhelming and it's made all the work so far absolutely worth it. At the other extreme, I've lectured at the University of Adelaide and the Psychiatry Grand Rounds at Flinders University with these ideas. And what strikes me is, particularly with psychiatrists and psychologists, is that I'm reminding them of their own craft. I'm reminding them of the origins of their very trade and to have, I guess, that um, extra validation from the veteran community themselves it closes a nice circle. So today you're still a general service officer with the Royal Australian Army Medical Corps. You're continuing your work within the Australian Army. This isn't just research you're wanting to present back to Australia, but also throughout the world. certainly have uh, recently been engaged by the um, Canadian Armed Forces to share my research with them in that context. Just December last year, the Canadian Armed Forces raised a transition group, which is commanded by a, a Brigadier General. 
to really face and do something about the facilitating environment that the Defence Force offers to their personnel as they uh, leave the military. And the particular focus of that group is uh, medical transitions. Off the back of a conference where I presented my work, yeah, I was invited over there to talk to them more about my research. And uh, it helps, you know, obviously help them frame a lot of the practices that they're um, developing over there. And in particular, one challenge that we have as an academic community and also as a military community is to really work out, you know, how do we measure this? Identity is really, really hard to measure. And there are so many programs that veterans are offered, but how do we actually measure the efficacy of those? And in the mental health world, we always know that most therapeutic interventions work for a while. But how do we frame transition from the military, particularly on medical grounds, in a way where we can develop programs that have an enduring and long-lasting impact on the individual, and that takes a you know that takes a good a good instrument, and that's what we're working on at the moment with the Canadian Armed Forces to really develop some tools that can not only uh, I guess where we're going with that is so much of our research academic community tend to measure outcomes in terms of dysfunction and disorder, and what we're trying to do is bring uh, issues of wellness to that discussion but also weave in issues of identity, particularly from a values perspective, and look at what values are associated with disorders, what values are associated with well-being, and how these might sit together. These are questions we don't know, but there's been some early work in Germany looking at uh, these relationships, and it's something we hope to build on. So for members of the public who are not from a military background listening to today's podcast, what would you like them to take away from the discoveries that you've made? I'm going to get a little bit theoretical with that. Going back to the theory... We know that people undergo a degree of separation from their primary caregivers at around age three. We know that this occurs again at adolescence, and this is true for those who join the military or not. Each stage of of this separation is called an individuation and separation process. For those who join the military, they undergo a rebonding, and therefore they need to undergo what I like to think of as a third stage of individuation and separation, which can bring them to a point of complexity and maturity that would not be available if they had not served. They have seen the best of humanity, they have seen the worst of humanity, and can bring insight into the human condition, not only from a veteran perspective, but from a general civilian lay perspective. They've seen parts of us that we perhaps haven't seen ourselves. And given the right conditions, given the right support, I think those insights can most definitely come to benefit society as well as the individual veteran. And what about for veterans who might be listening to this podcast and may indeed have experienced some of the things you're talking about in terms of that inability to push past and just keep going? What would you say to them? For those who are um, suffering uh, as a consequence to their service, there is a critical need to see this as something that must be gone through in order to reach that next stage of maturity and complexity that I've already described. I would suggest they reach out and find role models. What I think veterans are most likely to benefit from is to hold on to hope that this is something that needs to be gone through in order to reach that next stage of maturity and complexity and to have the confidence that what you are bringing to civil society is not instead of your service. It's not in spite of your service. It's what you can bring from service that can go on to, I think, bring an extra dimension to the civil society that others won't have an extra degree of insight into humanity that others won't have, but to have the confidence in doing that. 
I really do think that there are so many values incumbent with military service that aren't recognised in civil society, yet uh, that civil society would greatly benefit from. And the difficulty there is that carrying those values into a society that perhaps doesn't appreciate them really makes you a leader. And leadership can be lonely, but also there is the wisdom of to understand when those some values aren't as useful as what they once were. I really learn to discern the difference in exercising those very important values that you've brought from the military, but also learning to adapt to the values of society as well. And it's a fine balance. And the most, you know, the most useful way to get there is to find a good role model, find several good role models, find trusted support systems, find a new rhythm and routine of everyday life that uh, that's sustainable and makes sense to you. And, and where necessary, find a therapist who can help you through this process. You talked about leadership, Paula. You're very much a leader in your field of expertise. Thank you very much for joining us today on Life on the Line and, and challenging us to think differently around veteran recovery and rehabilitation. Thanks, Sharon. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, my only hope here, I suppose, is that we can really take those lessons of the past that have been developed by some phenomenal veterans and start to think about how the theories can benefit the veterans of today and into the future. Dr. Paula Davovich, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. Thank you for listening. Learn more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod, like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.